at the Change the Globe retreat last weekend. It was really good. I learned a lot of different things. Um, but one of the things that stood out to me was um, Mike was just talking about uh, us as the church being the body of Christ and um, how God has just given all of us different uh different spiritual gifts, and so as the body of Christ, we have different functions, and um, we really need to be using our spiritual gifts um, to, like, be a full functioning body, and also uh, we really need to be, like, united as a body, and I think, like, one of the things Mike was saying that was really convicting was, like, we tend to kind of hang out with the people in the body that we get along with the best, that we click with the best, um, people around our own age, and it's like, that's not what God called us to. God called us to be united no matter what age or um, what personality or whatever, and just thinking about it more like, you know, like a body has different functions, you know, the feet, like, get us places, the hands, like, we can do work with our hands, and the eyes help us see where we're going and what we're doing and it's like if each of those things aren't like communicating with each other it's like we're useless you know so we really need to um, be like getting out of our comfort zone and talking to people that aren't in our normal circles and not our normal age and um, I think like that women's event that's coming up is like a great opportunity for at least the women in the church like ages 16 and up to really get to know each other and uh, the different ages to come together and stuff. And so, yeah, that's what I learned. <laughs> Good word, Sarah. Next is Asa. Give it up for Asa. Hello, everyone. Uh, so, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Greg and Melinda's oldest son, um, and right now I am one of those stereotypical millennials who can't find a job out of college and is living at home with his parents. <laughs> but for those of you who know my parents, um, they're not just letting me sit at home and watch TV and play video games all day. <laughs> they are, they, they've, I've been living in, wow, it's actually been almost a year since I moved back home, um, and they've been really focusing on getting me ready to go back out into the world, find that career job, live on my own, and be a productive member of society. Um, this is kind of the backstory leading up to what happened at uh, Change the Globe. Anyway, um, and so some of the things they've been, you know, they've been teaching me, um, you know, some cooking skills, um, how to budget, um, and they've been focusing on getting me back into the spiritual side of things. My spiritual life was pretty much non-existent in college. I barely read my Bible, almost never went to church. I just kind of let um, my immediate needs and wants sort of dictate my life. You know, school, friends, leisure. And so I just never bothered to set aside time to be in the Word or be a part of a church. Um, and so I go off to the Change the Little Retreat, and Mike has a couple of sermons prepared for Friday and Saturday night. And wouldn't you know it, it's the exact things that my parents have been talking, what we were talking about the day before I left. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> uh, so the two things were basically cutting out the things in your life that are preventing you from being a 
a good Christian from serving, from living a good Christian life. And even if cutting out those things, you know, takes away some of the good things in your life, like if the internet is keeping you from going out and serving, we'll just cut the internet out. That would kind of suck for a lot of people. <laughs> but if that's, what, if that's what you need to get out and be a productive Christian and serve, that's what you need to do. And then the second thing he talked about was being a part of a physical church. You know, it's, you know, when I was in college, I, I was part of the church with a capital C, because, you know, I never, like, renounced the faith or anything, but I was not a part of a church with a lowercase c. I was never, I never, you know, I was down in Rolla for college for six and a half years, um, and I never bothered to become a part of a church, um, never bothered to join another church. And I really feel like if I had, I would have had a much better spiritual life. So all that to say, you know, I've, there's been a lot of signs lately that point to I will probably be leaving home soon. I've had four different, inter, four different job interviews with the Department of Conservation, which is like my dream job for different positions. They've four different interviews to different positions. There's been a lot of other signs that are pointing me that I will probably be leaving home soon. So hearing all this now... Um, before, you know, before I leave home, this will be going with me when I leave, and I've got Mike and the change of repeat and Jesus to thank for that. So that's, that's that. Thank you, Asa. And last we got Alyssa. Give it up for Alyssa. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Alyssa. Um, I've been a part of Liberty's College Ministry Group for about a year now, but I've never actually been to a service. So day one, I'm already giving, giving a speech or whatever you want to call this. So first, I'm going to kind of share my testimony, like in a nutshell, and then I'm going to share some of the stuff that I learned this weekend. So to start off, I grew up in a super lukewarm Christian home. Uh, we went to church on like Christmas, Easter, and weekends here and there, uh, but I never was told, like, you're a daughter of God, treat yourself with respect, um, here's how to be righteous, here's how to be holy. I just heard, ask for forgiveness, and you're fine. So it wasn't until my sophomore year that I met a Mormon family, and for those of you guys who don't know what a Mormon is, it's pretty much in a nutshell, I guess. They claim to be Christian, but it's really the opposite of Christianity. There's no grace involved in that. So I was meeting with Mormon missionaries and eating dinner at um, different families' houses, and I had a date set to be baptized into their church um, my senior year, maybe my junior year, I can't remember. But um, So I went home the night that I found out that the missionaries had set a date for me to be baptized, and I told my mom, I'm so excited I'm going to be baptized in the Mormon church. And she said, absolutely not. And I was like, why? Like, this is the true church. Like, you need to be baptized in this church too. And she explained to me how they weren't really teaching the Bible. It was just so different than what the Bible had to offer. So I was like, okay, she's crazy, but I'm going to look into it anyway because I felt like I should. So 
I was testing the spirits. Uh, I started reading my Bible, and then I realized, okay, my mom was right again. So I stopped going to the Mormon church, and then I started attending a Christian church um, almost three years ago, and I've been loving it. Um, I've been learning about the gospel. Um, Yeah, it's been great. So on the retreat, which was a week ago, um, Mike spoke a lot of good things, but the thing that really stood out to me was how, yes, um, Jesus is graceful and he will forgive you when you ask, but the thing about repentance is repentance is followed by turning away from that sin. So we need to be holy because we're called to be like Jesus. Jesus was holy. We should be holy and obedient too. So basically I'm going to share a quick scripture 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. This is about testing the spirits. Um, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, I've been testing the spirits lately, and you can test the spirits. Read your Bible. I, I can testify that this is God's true word. Um, I've had the Mormons ask me to stand at the front almost every single month. I was going to their church, and they asked me to bear my testimony on their church, and I couldn't do it. But today, I can stand here, and I can say 100% that this is God's true word, and you can test it for yourself. So. Thank you, Alyssa. That was good. Um, pray, when, the last day when we're at the retreat, we, um, we have a, basically a time of sharing if people want to share. And much of the sharing was pretty much like that. So we could, we could take an entire service. We didn't want to do that. But um, God is doing a good work um, through Change the Globe. It's very exciting to see our college and career students um, have a heart for the Lord, um, be willing to be convicted of sin, be willing to change, um, and receive his word for what it is, the word of God. Um, last night was the Thrive Banquet. Yeah, they put a lot of time into that, um, and I've, I had an opportunity to go. Who else had an opportunity? It was really good. I encourage you, if you, um, didn't, if you haven't made it, if you didn't make it, um, to, to make plans next year. It's usually like, I think, the last Saturday or the second to last Saturday in September normally. And um, my, I saw my cousin there, who I only see a couple times a year, and someone had invited him, and he didn't know much about Thrive. I know it's like most of us, we're just like, we hear a lot about it, which is awesome. Um, but um, he's invo- greatly involved in his church, and he actually didn't know much about Thrive. So it was really exciting to see that someone had invited him um, to sit at their table um, and, to, and to find out about it, he was very impressed uh, with the evening, and it was a lot of fun. The, um, the last uh, number that I received was that um, they had raised last night um, $911,000. Wow, yes. So, and they were still, they were still counting, so just, just shy of a million and potentially could even um, hit a million. So um, it was very neat to see the work that God is doing through Thrive, um, lives being changed both physically um, and spiritually. The one lady, they usually have a lady each year that kind of gives um, her testimony, and it was, that to me is, is the, at least the last couple of years, has been the most powerful to hear um, these lady, ladies 
choose life for their baby, but then to see how God comes in and also, um, more importantly, saves their soul, right? And it's like a trickle-down effect, right? Because then she's going to bring up her baby, which was originally destined for death, is now destined for life and maybe even a rebirth. So it was cool. They had a video of a lady from 10 years ago, too, and now she has, like, I think it was four or five kids and seeking after the Lord. It was, it was very neat to see. And for us with our finances, and I know um, a number of people here serve thrive, and we all pray. It's neat to see God um, using that. One of the things that my cousin, I got a chance to talk with him a little bit after um, the night, he was really, 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 really impressed with the emphasis that Thrive um, placed on prayer, and how if we do not have prayer, then our efforts, which are feeble, won't accomplish really anything, and that if we don't have God backing us, supporting us, standing with us, um, we can throw all the money in the world at it, um, lives won't change. And so it was neat to see him pick that up. It was a major theme last night, and it encouraged me because that's kind of been the theme um, and something that's been placed on the pastor's hearts here of um, emphasizing, maybe re-emphasizing prayer. That's why we're going through a praying life in our life groups, because we'd really like to see a solid, legit, concerted effort by the church as a whole um, to be praying. Um, Today we're going to look at uh, Luke, so you can turn there. Um, And there is much value in going through a particular passage in the Bible and having a pastor speak on whatever it is, 5, 10, 15 verses right in a row. That's kind of my normal MO, or even to kind of pick a topic um, or an idea and trace it throughout the book. Um, but sometimes what you see is, is a topic that's chosen, and you'll see kind of what all of Scripture says. But what I'd like to do today is I just want us to look at Luke and see there's actually a couple different things that we can see. But today we're just going to kind of look at two things. Um, but the topic is going to be prayer and Luke's emphasis on prayer, especially in the life um, of Jesus. And the Lord has had me reading the Gospels quite a bit. This past year, um, he keeps bringing me back to him like he's probably never done before in my Christian walk. And I remember when I first got saved, um, I heard a lot about what people thought Jesus was, both Christians and non-Christians. But then reading the scriptures for myself actually ended up kind of correcting some of those misbeliefs or untruths about Jesus. And... Um, I think it's important for us. I think we all know this, but if we're not careful, we can let the culture influence um, our beliefs about Jesus in an unbiblical way. And the Gospels, along with um, the rest of the New Testament, that's the place where we need to get our info on Jesus about. Amen? And if we want to have a proper view of Jesus, if you want to talk about improper view of Jesus, um, you can talk about the Mormon church. Okay? And so it is exciting to me when God does something like that um, because the Mormons, they're, they're pretty good. If you've ever talked with 
Um, they're missionaries, and I've talked with more than a handful, but they are very good, they're well rehearsed, and um, they have it down to a science, so to speak. So it's very neat to see that um, God snatched Alyssa back and claimed him, claimed her for his own. So that is encouraging to me. Um, and uh, what helped correct the picture for Alyssa? She said it, the scriptures, right? It's the word. So we need to let the word speak. And a lot of times our culture, even I would say conservative Christianity, kind of paints a picture of Jesus as loving and merciful and gracious and kind and compassionate, which he is. Um, but it leaves out other things. And you cannot read the Gospels. I challenge you to read the Gospels. In fact, I challenge you just to read one Gospel and try to see if that's the only truths about Jesus, and you will quickly see that those are not the only truths about Jesus. Those are not the only descriptions of Jesus. We see righteous anger. We see, um, I would say, a very bluntness at times. He was very forward with certain groups of people. We see a boldness on his part. We see him correcting others. We see him being politically incorrect. We see him challenging others. And so um, it was important to me when I got saved, and it's still important, to let the scriptures shape our view of Jesus. Because if we want to be like Jesus, guess what? We need to have a proper view of Jesus. So I'd like to look um, specifically at the topic of prayer throughout the book of Luke today. First, I want us to see how Luke kind of emphasizes prayer in general. Then we're going to look at Jesus in regards to him praying, and then I'm going to make a few observations. So Luke chapter 1. Because of time, I, we can't always, I like to usually get context around verses, but some, for some of this, we're just going to have to, boom, go straight to it, okay? So Luke chapter 1. Uh, this is when the birth of John the Baptist uh, is, is going to be told to uh, the priest Zechariah. It says um, in verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, uh, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, right? Now that whole process of him going in there would involve prayer. But it goes on in verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So he's in there serving the Lord, praying, and the whole multitude of the people are praying. Then it goes on a couple verses later in verse 13. It says, um, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Well, apparently one of the things he was praying was for his barren wife. And here God immediately answers that prayer by sending an angel to his very presence. Look a chapter over in Luke chapter 2. This is when Jesus is presented at the temple as a baby. And in verse 36 it says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And there was a widow, and was a widow then until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and and day. Again, this emphasis just in the first couple of chapters of Luke on prayer. 
Then turn to Luke chapter 5, and in verse 33 we read this. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So here we see again Luke bringing up this topic. He could have listed a number of different things that the disciples of John do, but what's one of the things he mentions of the two? Praying. But when we look even more specifically uh, and, and look at what Jesus' life is like, just in the book of Luke, one book, that's all we're looking at today, we're going to see even more emphasis on prayer. Look back at Luke chapter 3. I bet some of you have missed this before. All right? But it's right there in the text. It's not even hiding. This is uh, Jesus' baptism. It says in verse 21, Luke 3, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. All right, I bet you've, some of you have missed that part about and was praying. Here Jesus is, the very beginning of his public ministry, and what is he doing? He's praying. Look at Luke chapter 5. This is the story of, of Jesus cleansing a leper. It says in verse 15, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Some of your versions um, add the word, he would often withdraw to desolate places and, pl- and pray. That's because the, the wording in the Greek gives the idea of something that he did on a regular basis. He would withdraw often to a desolate place and often pray. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So before choosing the twelve disciples, what does he do? All night in prayer. Major decision? All night in prayer. Uh, Look at Luke chapter 9. Maybe you've missed this one as well before. In verse 18. It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. I like, I like read that and was like, what? He's praying alone, but the disciples were with him. I mean, think about that. Like, why weren't they praying with him? Because he's praying, right? So they're there, but Jesus is praying, and, and the, the disciples were there, apparently clueless as they normally were. I mean, it's true, right? Um, he prayed when others weren't interested in praying. We should, too. A couple verses later, down in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. This is right before his transfiguration. So he's preparing himself. How is he preparing himself for the transfiguration? Prayer. Look at Luke chapter 11, the very first verse. Now Jesus was praying 
in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. All right? So, I mean, Luke makes mention, a certain place, Jesus is praying. Then we have a whole bunch of chapters where Jesus actually does some teaching on prayer. It is all throughout Luke. That's a sermon for a different day. But that's why we have a little gap, and that's why we're going to turn to Luke 22, because I want you to see the last time that Jesus prays. This is right before he's betrayed. They're at the Mount of Olives. It says in verse 39, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And he went to the place, he said to them, Pray. And when he came to the place, excuse me, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So here, as Jesus is getting ready to make the ultimate sacrifice, as his public ministry on this earth is coming to an end, what do we find him doing? Praying. From beginning to end and everything in between, Jesus was praying. So a few observations. One, Jesus prayed often, on a regular basis. Um, It was woven into his life and throughout his life. Why? It was important to him. And he wanted communion with his heavenly Father. He wanted that intimacy that comes through knowing the Father that we receive through prayer. Two, he prayed for lengthy periods of time. I mean, you can have a a quiet time each morning and pray for five minutes and read the Word for five minutes. Um, And that's considered praying often. Um, But that's not considered praying for a lengthy period of time. Um, Jesus, at times, prayed all night. That's praying for lengthy periods of time. <clears throat> and I don't know how your prayer life go, um, but usually the first, oh, I won't even say, but too much is spent just trying to get my, t- my, my mind, my heart, my will, kind of like all that stuff, uh, completely undistracted. And sometimes it's external things, right? Noises, kids, whatever. Um, but sometimes and oftentimes it's internal things where God is having to calm my heart, where I'm thinking about what I'm doing once I get done with praying, I'm thinking about what I should be doing once I'm done with praying, and all these other distractions, which is why I like the saying, pray until you pray. Because I have to pray sometimes a whole lot until I'm actually praying. Because I'll be praying, and all of a sudden I'm I'm in left field thinking about next week's basketball game that I got driving my kid to, and how's the carpooling situation? There's just so many distractions. Sometimes I think that's the enemy, and it is, but sometimes it's it's just us and our natural fallenness. We need to pray until we pray. 
Three, Jesus prayed with passion. He prayed with passion. If you're still in Luke 22, I want you to catch this. Because in verse 41, it talks about he, he, gets, he walk, goes away from them, he kneels down and he prays. Um, the angel appears, strengthens him. And then in verse 44, it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. You could say he prayed more fervently or ardently or eagerly. <clears throat> he was intense about it. He was devoted to it. This is an emotional prayer that Jesus is crying out to his Father. It's not devoid of emotion. There's, there's a fervency to it. And here's the thing that struck me. If Jesus can pray more earnestly, then so can I. And I'm very guilty of sometimes my prayers not being very earnest, not being very ardent, not being very fervent, but being kind of surfacey, kind of being just, I'm just going through the emotions, the, um, the motion without the emotion, and that's not good. Because it just, it just shows that we're kind of flippant about prayer, and we shouldn't be. Um, what is the picture that Luke is wanting to emphasize to us? That prayer is central to Jesus' life. It's not just something on the periphery, not just something that's kind of tacked on. It's central to it. It was important to Jesus, and it was something that he made time for. I mean, think about that. But he had to be intentional about making time for it, because it talks about he would withdraw. All the crowds are are crowding in, and they want the healing, and they want the blessing, and, and they want the miracles. It'd be very easy for him to just to give in to that, just to wear himself thin. But Jesus, the Son of God, saw the importance of communion with the Father, of carving that time out, of getting away from the crowds, of making sure he had uninterrupted time with him and the Father. And guess what? We've got so many distractions, I got one in my pocket. Okay, it's not a Game Boy. <laughs> It's my case, <clears throat> right? We have, a, we have a constant distraction that most of us carry in our pocket. And it buzzes. Some of you, it buzzes quite often. And it, it's an, an, an interruption. It can be a distraction. And there are days when I, when I wake up and my first inclination is to grab this thing. All right? Um, it's not always the best way to start your day. Um, because I'm just setting myself up to, to let this thing kind of like control what's going to happen today. And um, I got so sick of the notifications. I mean, you can have this thing notify you just about anything that happens in your life or anybody else's life. It's true, right? Um, I personally had to turn some of those notifications off because because... If you're ever trying to do something really important, um, they say that if an interruption comes, it actually takes you, they've done studies on this, it can take you 10 to 15 minutes just to get back to the initial place where you got interrupted. And if you want to know where I feel this the most, it's actually when I'm working on a sermon. And I'll be, I'll be deep in thought, I'll be having this great thought that I 
feel like the Lord's leading me to put down on paper, and then there's an interruption. Sometimes it's not even of my own doing, right? The email comes across, one of my kids needs to talk to me, but it takes me a good five minutes to swing back to that, and sometimes, sadly, I lose that kind of train of thought that was going on. But what's my point? Distractions, distractions. And our world is set up, it's like to be one giant distraction, Put the phone aside, walk out the door, there's billboards, commercial, all that stuff, distractions. And it is so easy for us to get focused on the physical and forget about the spiritual. Guess what prayer does? It reorients the life. It reorients you to what is important, to where your focus needs to be. Many times I walk out of prayer and I'm like, man, Lord, that, that was... That was really more, I got more out of that prayer, almost like in a, in a healthy, selfish way. Why? why? Is it because it got me back to the place where I really needed to be of knowing what's important in my life, what God wants me to do, where my focus needs to be. And some of us need to do that, to kind of reorient and get back on track with where God wants us to be. See, prayer, I mean, we see it, we know prayer, um, it's time we actually make a commitment to do it, to actually pray and to do it well. And I think all of us have definitely a knowledge of it, maybe even an understanding of the importance to it, but now it's time to actually move from that knowledge and that understanding to living, from right thinking to right action. And I don't know about you, um, I want to be like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? I mean, this is a way, a concrete way we can be like Jesus. And we want some of these extra, these cool things that Jesus was, um, but we don't want some of what we consider lesser things. I mean, don't think less of prayer. That is foundational. And the thing that was so attractive to me when it came to Christianity, when I got saved, was the idea that the creator of the universe wanted to know me. And he already knew me, right? He knows all things. Um, but <clears throat> he wanted me to know him, and he wanted to have a relationship with me. I mean, that blew my mind. Because my Christianity uh, that I grew up with was more of a hands minimum, a hand's length relationship with God. Um, arm's length, football field length. You know, he was out there, and I was here. And I didn't understand that the death of Jesus opened up the opportunity to have my relationship with my Heavenly Father restored. With Jesus, you know, he dies on the cross, the veil is torn. It's torn from top to bottom in the temple, right? But what is the significance of that? God is the one who tore that veil from top to bottom, and now there's no veil. It's gone. Access to the Holy of Holies, where God himself resided. I mean, think about that. That's what, that's what upset 
the Jews back then to, for Jesus to say he was, he was my father. How, you know, how dare you, Jesus, claim something like that? How dare you claim such an intimate relationship? We've got this high priest, okay? Once a year, he gets to go into that holy of holies. They had a distorted image, too, of this kind of arm-length relationship. But the veil tears, and here it is, access. Why? Because Jesus opened the way to the Father through his death. He took all your sins, all of them, on, you, on himself. So he takes your sins, <clears throat> but here's the thing. And I mentioned this at the retreat. I think this part gets left out too often. Jesus takes your sin on him, all right? But that just gets you to a place of like a moral neutrality. You're just morally neutral, okay? So he, he wipes it away. The slate is clean, but it's just clean. The slate's clean, but it needs righteousness. It needs holiness. So Jesus gives you his righteousness. It's the great substitution. He takes something from you, and he gives something to you. But you've got to have the righteousness in order to go to heaven. If you're just morally neutral, that doesn't do you any good. You need the righteousness of Christ. That's why when it talks about he is our righteousness in the scriptures, I mean, it is speaking complete, 100% truth. We have the righteousness of Christ. That is an amazing thing. God looks at us. He sees righteousness. He sees holiness. Why? Because we have what Christ gave to us. He takes his, his, his righteousness and gives it to us. He takes our sins upon himself and he deals with it. That's beautiful. And that forgiveness, that righteousness, is why it says in Hebrews, we can go boldly to the throne and talk to our Heavenly Father. We can go with confidence. We can appear before him in communion and have that relationship and have that fellowship. And anyone who has trusted in Jesus has that. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You can't re read the Gospel of John sometimes. I mean, it is crystal clear because you get some people these days trying to say, oh, there's different ways to God. And, I mean, Jesus, let, just let Jesus speak for himself in the Gospel of John. I mean, so many times he just says, it's, it's, it's about me. And you're like, dude, if he's just a man, that's like the most prideful, selfish thing possible. But if he's the God-man, that's complete and utter truth and powerful. And he's the God-man. And you only get to the Father through the Son. And it's available to each person here. So in a minute, um, we're gonna, I'm going to turn the mic back on. And um, <clears throat> by the way, we don't, we don't upload the prayer part to the, to the podcast or whatever. So if you're ever like, oh, I'm going to pray for my friend, and maybe they'll hear that or something, or I'm going to pray for my son or my mom or something like that, we don't, we don't upload um, the prayer part to the podcast just to ease anyone's concerns. So pray all you want for all those people. <clears throat> um, so we're going to do that in a second, but I want, to, I want to encourage you, if you're here today and 
Um, we've had people that have grown up in this um, church for many, 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 many years, and um, for many, 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 many of those years did not trust Jesus. And they came to a point of doing that. And we've had other people come, and it's their first or second time, or they've only been coming for a few weeks, and they haven't trusted Jesus, and they decided to trust Jesus. So somewhere in that range is you, right? And I encourage you to let today be the day that God saves you, because he wants to, okay? God has a never-ending love for you. And it is a sweet thing to know your Heavenly Father and to be able to commune with Him. And that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him as your Savior. Seeking Him to forgive your sins and asking for Him to give you His righteousness. And He'll do it just like that. So I encourage you if that is you, to do that today. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts better than anybody, better than we know our own hearts. Lord, we want to be people of prayer. We want to be people who seek you. We want to be people who ask and keep asking God who seek and keep seeking you, Lord, who knock and keep knocking on your door, God. We want to be people of prayer. Not just in the name, God, not just something that we say we do, but something we actually do. And um, Lord, all of us, All of us need your mercy, God. All of us need your grace. And so I pray you'd pour it out on all of us. Fill us with your spirit so we can pray how we ought. Fill us with your spirit so that we're driven to you, God, to seek you. Lord, I pray if if there's anyone here who does not know you, that you'd speak to them right now about their relationship with you, about how much you love them, about how you want them to flee sin and pursue you, and that they would trust through your Son in you. Lord, bless our time of of prayer that we're going to have as we end the service. that you would be magnified.